what I learned through that was that I, I could teach myself stuff. You know, until then, you, you think everybody's telling you what to learn and, um, and spoon feeding you and so on. Whereas once you get to realise, hey, I can teach myself stuff, whatever it is, once you develop that confidence, it, it's a, a life changer because... Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hi guys, it's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits and we are really excited to be bringing to you our next guest, which is our first live interview with Ian Pollard. Now, Ian is business royalty here in Australia. He's run multiple businesses, formerly chairman of the board for Billabong Australia, our iconic surf brand. And we dive deep into his philosophies and principles for success. Now, Ian is a Rhodes Scholar, played elite tennis. He's written multiple books. In this interview, we focus on his book that he's written with his daughter called Mental Spinach. It is a short but super impactful book which outlines his philosophy for success, which is through what he calls lenses. And so we unpack these lenses in the conversation. Now, this is the first of what we hope to be many live interviews, and we want your feedback as to whether or not you value them live. And if so, we will start to do more of them. We were quite careful in picking our first guest, and we know that we really nailed it with Ian. We are keen for your feedback. Please let us know what you think about the live format, the interview, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We want to know it all. Enjoy this conversation, guys. Ian has so much wisdom, so much depth. He's a very thoughtful and engaging man. And yeah, really enjoyed our time with him. Anyways, guys, take care. Enjoy the show. Peace. Well, Ian, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, RJ. Delighted to be here. Yeah, well, it's a long time in the making, lots of conversations, and there was so much material to research. Um, I'm glad that you distilled most of it into this wonderful book called Mental Spinach that you wrote with your, with your daughter, Jess. Now, I read the book and, as I was saying before the show, found it extraordinary so much wisdom, distilled, no BS approach, mental spinach, four lenses to nourish, love, work, and play. Tell us how you came up with this whole concept of mental spinach, please. There, this one's a very long story, RJ, but basically 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Investing in Your Life, which was the result of about 10 years work prior to that. And its core, it, it, it was a long book, 350 pages. Each paragraph, book. <laughs> each, each paragraph was an easy read, but there was a lot in it. Yeah. And it had a very core thesis in it, totally original thesis that I wanted to communicate in full in this book. And the core of that thesis was about the fact that each of us has what I call strangely an original term, our life capital. And our life capital had three big components, our human capital, our social capital, and our financial capital. 
and this, the human would be the, our intellectual capital, our emotional, psychological capital, our health, our spiritual capital, etc. So human capital, our social capital is our relationships, connection with our partner, our immediate family, our wider family and close friends, our professional uh, contacts, our coaches, etc. Yeah. And then finally our financial capital. And the big distinctive thing about the financial capital is that it is highly measurable and consequently highly comparable, firstly with what it was last year or last week, and also with the guy in the office next door mm. or uh, mm. your younger brother yeah. or the neighbour. Yeah. And so I believe it gets a lot more attention than the human social capital, but I'm a strong believer that it's the human social capital that are ultimately the things that make your world for you. That, that's what makes who you, who you are. They're the things that are unique. There's nothing unique about most features of a financial capital other than perhaps if there's a special business in there or something like mm -hmm. that that's part of the rest and part of your nourishment. But dollars are dollars, whereas the human and social characteristics aren't. So that's the first thing, is, is identifying those three bits so you can regularly focus on each of the three because if you're a uh, community, a business, an individual or a family, you really need a balance, some sort of balance of all three. And to know if one of those foundations is getting, mm. uh, getting a bit off track. Mm. Do you find that I know that you do coaching and you're probably focused on top tier executives, but do you find that in general the people that you're coaching lack an understanding of the relationship between all three? Like, like do you find people tend to compartmentalize? Uh, great question. I, th I think that um, they recognize that all three are there mm -hmm. and uh, do see links between them, mm. but I, I make as a generalisation mm. that very few people place the amount of emphasis on the three and their interrelationships and the way they grow that I do. In fact, I'm absolutely confident of that because I, I'm um, almost over the top with excitement about how big those were you always all are. this were you always this philosophical early on in your career or was this something that evolved as you became wiser with age I suppose um, oh I think uh, there is an element of wiser with age in it <laughs> but at, at, at one point I had a significant uh, realization of something which explained the way I'd thought about things since I was about 13 and, and things that I'd learned from my father. But I ended up being able to put them in a, in a uh, framework that actually gave them more power for me. And I'll just explain that, explain yeah. that framework. I said that financial capital is different from the other two because of its measurability and comparability. And part of the beauty of that is, uh, the beauty of the measurability, is you can really see how it grows. 
whether it's your or my individual net worth, or whether it's a portfolio of investments, or whether it's the value of business, you can see in it the way it grows. And if you look at any of those, there are a whole lot of key drivers in that that are standard amongst, mm -hmm. amongst businesses and investments. And I think our audience has, may have quite a lot of business people in it. For sure. So they will understand, I think, more deeply the mm -hmm. concepts I'm going to talk about. Mm -hmm. But financial capital is driven by compounding, mm -hmm. described by Einstein as the sort of eighth wonder of the world. Uh, so compounding, leverage, options, mm -hmm. uh, rewards for taking a risk, um, uh, thing, things like that anyway that drive financial capital. Now, what I did in this book originally was to flesh out in across quite a spectrum how these same things mm. are alive and very well and strong in growing human capital. Mm. That it was growing brilliant. social capital. It was brilliant. I, that the way that you used financial themes in human life was actually so obvious, but I've never seen it done before. Well, in, in one sense, you have you you may not have seen it done with the breadth I did, but I know that in your ultra habits, one of the things you focus on is the power of habits, compounding, yeah, of 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 compounding on each other, but also the power of habits because they are having a recurrent effect, like. In financial parlance, we talk about that as an annuity of mm -hmm. impact, and that gives them uh, far bigger impact on uh, you, your life, your growth, uh, your relationships. Because ultimately, you can do less work, and it will continue to grow, right? Yes. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 To to um, give you a little example of that. My co-author in the book, Jess, when she was, she's now 30, about to turn 31, but when she was about 13 or 14, she had incredible trouble sleeping. And so she went on a course which uh, cost us as a parents $500, her four hours of a time, but from that course she learn the things she needed to do in order to get a better night's sleep. She changed those, or she implemented those immediately. And the beauty of that example is we all know we sleep every day. And so the benefit of that accrued to her every day, but also because she was practicing it every day, it meant that she hasn't had to do a refresher course mm. She's got a lifetime mm -hmm. of benefit from that. And she spent time as a, um, as a professional singer-songwriter, still does that part-time, but she spent time doing that and be it um, uh, you know, big day out performing or whatever, and she could still come home and get a decent mm -hmm. night's sleep even after those you know, mm -hmm. big highs and so on, which is quite, uh, I think, remarkable considering where she was. Mm -hmm. But that's about habits, mm -hmm. and it's about investing um, in that case, quite a small amount of time and energy to make a change. I want to go back a step 
when you were 13 and what those realizations were, how did they come about? And you mentioned your father. I want to understand the role that he played in who you've become because I think it's, we talked about that offline and I think it'd be great for the, the audience. Um, what, what I'd like to do is to talk, break that into two bits. The first of it is I'd like to say a little bit about my father because it links in to quite a few other yeah, concepts sure. that yeah. are important. Uh, so my father, unlike me, was somebody who grew up uh, with really nothing. He, um, he, he was living in Melbourne in the 20s. His father went uh, broke in, in a uh, textile import business and um, they moved to Norfolk Island to be banana growers. Wow. And that was when Dad was eight. Um, after five years, probably after one year, it was clear it wasn't going to work. But anyway, after five years, it was very clear it wasn't, wasn't going to work. <laughs> yes. And, and uh, my grandfather stayed there, but sent Dad to Sydney with his mum, with his mum, uh, so he could get an education. So he started high school at age thirteen, having really had no prior education, and. Uh, was treated, for, he, he had the good fortune to get into probably the best school in New South Wales. His mother talked his way in. He was mistreated by the headmaster there very badly in the first year that he was there. But um, three years later, at age 16, he ended up being the equivalent of top in the New South Wales High School Certificate. Just through the sheer application of, of his um, energy and his ability to he must have been reasonably smart, yeah. but just through sheer energy, commitment of time, managing his time, um, focusing on getting better and better progressively, uh, he achieved that. Now he went through university, did, did uh, you know, absolute top of everything, won a scholarship to go to Cambridge. Wow. And that was during the uh, Depression, and most of this was during the Depression, and his parents were both then in Sydney, but both were invalided. And so he couldn't take up that scholarship to go to Cambridge uh, and ended up getting a job here as an actuary, well, training to be an actuary in a, a life insurance company, the MAC. And uh, he later, he, he stayed working there for many years. But what was significant was he was deprived at that time of the opportunity to pursue this academic career, which was his great love. He started to do extra studies in about 1940, and his boss at, at the MLC uh, noticed the results of Dad's degree, whatever it was, in the newspaper, and said to him, um, you're not to do any external study, you know, basically, uh, we own you and if you've got any time for anything, you can think about MLC's position and so on. Okay. So he then found the only way through that was to actually do degrees by distance learning from the United Kingdom. Right. And he ended up doing four degrees from there, including a, a PhD, which was very rare in those days. And while working? Uh, while working, while also doing uh, war services in, in 
teaching radar and things to people, but he did these four uh, degrees by external study. And what was fascinating then was uh, uh, at the end of that, when uh, the boss found out what he'd been doing, he very proudly paraded Dad around Sydney as our Dr. Pollard, so this was something oh, special. Uh, yeah. Your dad rolled with it? <laughs> uh, dad rolled with it, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. but uh, it ended up a very dear <clears throat> friend of his at the AMP. Um, the AMP and MLC were then very uh, close competitors. The AMP said, oh, these guys can't have a you know, doctor of philosophy, whatever, unless we have one, and they uh, sent somebody from the AMP who was a very good friend of Dad's over to England three years fully paid oh, to right. do his doctorate and so on. Now, I just give that as an example of the fact that he came from absolutely nothing other than a, a good family background. His, his, his family were honest, hard-working um, people who really just had had a lot of bad luck, perhaps some bad judgement. But they were people who had a good work ethic and so on. Um, and, and so to this day, I have just the deepest of admiration for people who, unlike me, can go from having nothing and no obvious opportunity to really achieving remarkable things. And therein lies what I call um, sort of exponential growth. You know, it's a, diff it's, a, it's a concept that I think is important because that's if you want to be visionary and, and make a material contribution, uh, to think exponentially rather than linearly mm -hmm. isn't particularly natural, but it's really valuable. Because if you think, you know, when we're growing up, you go from first class to second class to third class to fourth class, one a year every year, you go from the 14... 13 B's football to the 14 B's to the 15 A's, but it's all, you know, we think life goes on linearly, but it's a long way from the, that. There's an interesting, uh, the, the second time uh, in our conversations where you have really um, showcased that level of humility around the fact that it was easier for you. We talked about uh, my interview with Joe DeSena, and you had said to me that you certainly weren't a Spartan. And whilst I find that humility um, super interesting and it's, uh, I respect it, I feel that your character and what I've come to know of you, irrespective of whether you had come from opportunity or not, given the man that I'm looking at today, it wouldn't have mattered. What, what would your well, comment be to that? Like, because I, I feel the man I'm looking at today would have made it irrespective of where or what stock you had come from. Yes, that <laughs> I'm not. I'm not convinced of that. Really? So that's what, no, I think that it doesn't sound like you are, and I'm just, no, just interested as to why. Why I'm not convinced of it is because uh, I do think in life it is so important who you stumble across, who can be role models for you. And, and people who can give you insights about uh, even somebody who says to you, hey, RJ, I think you're capable of something special. I don't know quite what it is, but you're capable of something special. I want you to know that. 
And if you ever want somebody to talk to about it, you know, mm -hmm. give me a call. Um, and, and that might come from a school teacher. It might come from your first boss. It could mm -hmm. come from a family member or a sibling. Um, and and I, I had the good fortune of having that framework already around me. I had um, older and twin sibling, older siblings, twin sibling, um, who were also role models and so on. And I think the the role of role models in this sort of thing is so important because it helps us to envisage something that is worth aspiring to and seeing a path to get there. But you're super self-determined though. And you're but you're saying had the environment not presented itself the way it did, you might not have become such a determined person. That's what you're saying. Could be. Yes. Or you're not 100% certain of it. And because yes. you're a numbers man, you type 10 to be You like to speak in certainty, maybe yes. to a certain degree. Yeah. Well, there is an element of that, but there's also the question of just how determined are you, is one. You know, how are you so determined, so committed that you'll knock over that barrier and that barrier and that barrier and that barrier? Um, that's what's needed to do what. Uh, my dad, so many immigrants to Australia have done, um, mates I've had who I've seen over the years. I don't know that I have that same determination to bash over this barrier and that barrier because I've had a range of options whereby if the barrier got reasonably hard on this option, I'll go over there. And I do know in some important spots in my life because I've had a plan B or a second option or something, I, I find it yeah. easy to move away from what might have been the core goal and say, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting piece. So I've had the benefit of um, catching up with kids that I went to high school with and we had taken different paths, actually primary school, and there were a couple in particular, but there was one kid who, his name was Nicholas, and he went on to Harvard, and he uh, got a law degree from Harvard, and he had always excelled when we were kids, and I was always at the back of the class, right? But we had a conversation about a year ago, and I made the assumption that he was very driven and was very resolved in his decisions. He said to me that actually it wasn't the case. And what I realized was he was just very, very smart too. He understood how to apply himself and where he might have lacked in resolve, he made up with functional expertise. So what you're saying is that you might have been, you might have some gifts as well. You might have certain depth and ability to, to kind of like get a Rhodes Scholarship, which for me, I'm assuming takes tons and tons of pushing and pushing and, you know, resilience. And But for what you're saying to me is that that may not be the case. It might have been, you're just a smart person. Uh, for me, it was easier than for many others because I grew up in... Um, 
an environment where I understood the tools needed to get to academic success. I had, uh, I'll give you two examples of that. Um, my, uh, so there, there was a sporting element to these things. I played a lot of sports, but particularly tennis. Now it happened that my second oldest brother, Jeff, who later ran Tennis Australia for 20 years or whatever, but he, when I was um, eight, went to play Junior Davis Cup in America for two years in a row, both times he and Tony Roach, and uh, was two years in a row runner-up in the World Junior Tennis Championships. Now, you can imagine the motivation that gives me as an eight-year-old kid apart from the contacts and whatever. And my dad coached both of us, even though he was a self-taught tennis player. Um, and, and, and at exactly the same time, my other brother, John, who was the oldest, well, I have other siblings as well, but John was the oldest. Uh, when I was 11, he left to go to study at Cambridge for three years on the Shell Scholarship. And, um, I, I saw the pleasure he got out of that. He used to send back these wonderful diaries of all his travels and um, has since done remarkable travels. He's driven London to Sydney three times, once over to here and twice back uh, through all sorts of amazing places. Um, so I saw the great pleasure he got out of this. Now, that was when I was 11. and, and uh, so just those two examples and the influence yeah. of my other siblings I could yeah. go through. It's, it's a richness of, that's, that's luck. Uh, not luck, it's um, environment. A, a, a very lucky uh, yeah. environment to be in yeah. and, and so on. And yeah. so you meet other people in your travels who have had, yeah. had really, really difficult um, upbringings. Often it'll be because of some family circumstances, mm. or it may just be the country in which they've been born, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so on. And so yeah. I have deep admiration yeah. for people in that situation, with the consequence that if, if I'm interviewing two, peop two people for a job, and they're substantively equal candidates on you know, the mm. way they engage with you, their experience mm. curve, etc. Um, I would always go for the one who's come from the tougher upbringing because I know they're on a stronger mm. curve of, mm. of acceleration. Yeah, it's, it's such an interesting one, Ian. Like, we, with our first son, who's three and a half, I've gone through different phases where I've thought I'm going to send him to public school and have him fight for, you know, his right to party, as they say, or the decision we have made is sent him to the grammar school, which is a very expensive school, but I want the bar to be naturally set high in the environment to foster his growth. So effectively what you're saying happened to you at home, and what I'm hoping is that the environment, because my concern is that he will not develop the resilience in an environment where there's lots of optionality and support. On the other hand, I'm thinking that he, be, he will be tough because excellence will be demanded there. But I'm also of the mind that if we throw him into a public school, he'll be kind of forced to fight his way through. And I'm, I'm quite torn, to be honest, 
on that decision, I do know, and my dad said to me, and probably my dad is biased because of how I turned out when I went to school, he said, RJ, you can afford it, send him to private school. And that's what we're gonna do. Um, and I am of the belief that part of the reason I'm creating wealth is to give him options, not to make him fight, right? And so yes. it's this difficult, yeah, it's a difficult decision to make. Yeah. And, and in what I'm saying, I'm not implying in any way that I would have liked to have grown up in a tougher environment yeah. and had it tougher and so on. I'm just, I'm just making reflections on different growth paths yeah. and so on. But back to your, your son, uh, he's three and a half now and, and so he's not um, yet quite ready to be making decisions himself mm. about which school he might no, go to, not yet. <laughs> but when, when he's, when he's um, 10 and 11 and that decision by whomever is imminent, um, for a lot of kids, their ownership of the decision will be a lot greater if they make the decision as to, well, here are your options. You know, do you um, want, you know, here's what this school stands for, here's what that one stands for. and. Um, uh, and there may be more than two or three choices. Uh, but in our own case, we found that very interesting in the way our kids, we, we let them make those decisions within certain parameters and with us feeding them some of the concepts they might take into account in making the decision. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, a kid's buy-in, so they jump out of yeah. bed. You understood stakeholder management. And stakeholder <laughs> management. You understood that piece even with your kids. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and very much my wife's uh, doing in that. But, and she, in the context of kids, uh, and the same applies in adults and, and jobs and projects, is um, the question, you know, am I setting this kid up for success or am I setting this kid up for failure because of the um, whatever the factors are mm. that are operating mm. in the situation at hand? Yes. And that actually takes us beautifully into this concept outlined in the book of opportunities and opportunity pipeline. Let's unpack that, Ian. Um, your view on uh, opening your eyes to opportunities, how to create opportunities, uh, sizes of opportunities, that whole piece I think uh, is quite important to talk about. Yeah. So our, our book is really broke, uh, called mental spinach, is broken up into four lenses through which you can look at life or various aspects of life. And the first one of those is what we call the identity lens. And that's really about understanding yourself. And it's the precursor to the opportunity one in that via understanding yourself, you really get a feel for well, what really matters to me, what are my strengths, what am I looking for, etc. What sort of opportunities am I looking for? And once you've decided that, what I, I, Jess and I envisage is this opportunity pipeline which has a big funnel at the top and that funnel is the uh, becoming aware of opportunities funnel. And so there are a whole lot of opportunities out there in the world, but there's only a small proportion of those that 
Sorry, there's a whole lot of opportunities out there that are relevant to your own ambitions. But inevitably, you'll only become aware or hear of or whatever a certain proportion of those. And that's this funnel up the top. And only once things fall through that into that do you then get the chance to apply a range of sieves to it. Sieves like, um, is this uh, a big enough opportunity to be, to be worth considering? Is there another one which is somewhat similar but really better? Um, does this opportunity really um, offer a good return for the amount of time, energy, etc. I'm going to put into it? And various questions like that you can sieve it out and then certain ones pop out the bottom. And the crunch question then is, well, okay, have I actually got the time? Mm. Or it may be the money or the resilience or whatever it is, but have I got what it takes now to pursue that opportunity? So have you developed a net present value model to uh, determine no, which, I mean, no. <laughs> which opportunities are better? But on that, in, in some circumstances, yes, you could. You, you know, in a sense, what, you, what, what is in my mind a lot yeah. is this thing of what is the return on investment mm. in this situation. And so I talked earlier about uh, Jess's sleeping course. Mm. I've been on many courses over the years and um, some of them stand out like a negotiating course. Mm. Uh, I can remember going into a negotiating course in 1989. And at the beginning, they and I'd been in business then for 12 years in sort of investment banking uh, type context, advising companies on mergers and things. And I thought, well, I'm a pretty good negotiator. And, and at the beginning, they asked the question, well, you know, how do you rate yourself out of 10 as a negotiator? And, uh, you know, I gave myself a reasonably high mark. Let's say it was 8 out of 10. And what I realised by the end of this course was that I had actually been a 4 out of 10, not an 8 out of 10. And I don't like generally being a 4 out of 10. And then when I thought about it, um, I'm actually not a 4 out of 10. I'm an 8 out of 10 at the aspects of negotiation I understood. But there are all these other little dimensions beyond it that I became aware of through the course. And so what I then have the opportunity is to <coughs> excuse me, look at it as a game out of 20 with a few simple extensions of the game that over time I can go from being an 8 out of 20 to being a 17 out of 20 and, and it's opened whole new horizons and the beauty of that is negotiating something we do every day of the week yeah. in different ways. Oh yeah, from our wives to our three and a half year olds yes. to our employers. Yes, absolutely. And so how does one then Let's just speak generally, because I know this is a complex question, with, and it could be subjective in many ways, but how does one then assess an opportunity through your framework to determine which to pursue? Uh, at the end of the day, um, it's gut feel. Okay, so, okay. But, but, okay. Um, or gut feel's got to be a, a significant part of it. And what I'm... I wouldn't want you or our, our listeners, viewers, to think that 
I try to quantify everything to any great degree. But I think, what, but if I can, I think your the way you your analytical framework is very good that it helps what is generally quite subjective to kind of you can use a framework to say well like if you tie in the opportunity lens with once you determine what is fundamental to who you are and your identity you can then link I suppose the opportunity back to your own personal charter right and say well which one actually ticks the box. Yes, right. absolutely. And uh, you can, yeah, you can do that. And there, there's no perfect science about no. it or whatever, but it's, it's a discipline of, of thinking, okay, I'm looking at, at the end of the day, this is an opportunity, uh, there's the numerator is what's the reward coming out of it, whether it's for me, my business, my family, or, or the community divided by, excuse me, the denominator is the, the amount of time, energy, attention and dollars or whatever that's got to go into this thing. And um, what I try to do through the framework that I've set up and in my own thinking is to give some tools for thinking, hey, which ones of these are big because they're recurrent? Or which ones of these offer great potential because I can see a building process, a compounding going on here that over time will go like that. Or which ones here lead to a lot of really positive outcomes. I don't know how big each of those mm. positive outcomes is, but I know there are a lot that can help me in different ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I think, it's, I think it's essential to know thyself first because if you don't know yourself, when I, when I embarked on an MBA, a lot of people said to me, it's a lot of hard work, you're not academic, you're a sales guy, you should just focus on closing more deals. I couldn't quantify the value of the MBA. So what I mean is I didn't have a plan that I was gonna do an MBA and get a higher paying job but one of my guiding principles was in, in life was to do whatever option was there that I knew would stretch me mentally, spiritually, emotionally. And I knew the MBA intuitively was the right thing. Now here's the thing, and I think you'll appreciate this. I'm sitting in a corporate finance class one day trying to figure out what the hell they're talking about. And they're talking about equity and they're talking about you know these these principles and I'm like I I want equity too in a company I think I'm going to go approach companies in my sector and see if I can get this thing called equity and yeah. I ended up getting it and I guess what I'm saying is at the time I did what was aligned with my true north get the MBA and that thing created uh, options from doing it where it expanded my horizons I learned about things yes and then those options opened and I trusted that would happen but people were saying to me when I was doing the MBA well what's the measurable benefit are you gonna get a raise are you gonna and it's it's too hard like you, you yeah, don't know not, that right no 
you have to trust, I suppose. Yeah, right? yeah. A lot of um, life is about um, finding options, finding visions, learning something new, some some key insight, and and uh, one of the again a process I don't necessarily apply it every day or whatever, but is is okay. I've read this newspaper article, or I've read a book called Mental Spinach. What in that is a, is something really significant? So what you know? What what's significant in that that can change things for me? And <clears throat> sort of like a light bulb, like you talked about, really, hey, this concept of equity. Mm. That's the that to me is a light bulb, which will burn bright in your mind for a long time, and be of great value and influence future decisions. And because you take some equity, will increase your understanding of the importance and value of it, and the motivational impact of it, and so on. And, and um, a lot of things in a course like an MBA or a course on negotiation, whatever, they're just little insights that, um, you know, you'll lock away and they'll have their days in the sun. I, I feel that the MBA for me was transformational in the many ways that when I looked at people around me, I don't know if everyone got the same impact. And I think because I'd come into commerce through street smarts, I'd always had that barrier of being able to talk to a CEO comfortably without feeling like an imposter. And I think the MBA opened up my eyes and I loved education, but I had to be an adult to really appreciate it. It was weird. Like I would have never appreciated it as a younger man, right? So yes. yeah. you talk about your youth and your life and having all these wonderful people supporting you. In the book, you talk about identifying your support crew. I've talked to other psychologists. I talked to um, a woman who um, studied under Angela Duckworth, the, the professor on grit, and she talked, uh, this, this guest, uh, or this, uh, this woman we interviewed, her name was Amelia, she also talked about this concept of having an environment that creates psychological safety. Uh, Let's talk about having your support crew. Super important. Let's yes. talk about that. Let's of talk which the psychological safety? And support crew, because I think it's yes. all tied in. Yeah. Yes, they are. I think it's tied in. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's start with yeah. support crew. Um, I guess what Jess and I have in mind when we talk about our support crew are yeah, the people on whom you can rely in important circumstances. And they may be different people for different types of contexts. Like if you, uh, somebody who will take the time to spend time with you when you're looking for options or vision or an introduction somewhere, maybe a quite different person from somebody whose shoulder you want to cry on. But I think it is important for us to know, well, who are those people who ultimately I can really rely on for a, um, an empathetic but frank uh, or constructive and visionary, as the case may be, conversation, relationship at the times that matter. And 
let's take the example of you've decided you want to go a different direction in your working life. Who are the people who uh, will think of you when, when certain opportunities or contexts are mentioned to them? Who will be the people who will, when a situation is described, will say, ah, RJ's your man, you need to meet RJ. I was talking to him last week and he said he's really aiming to do A, B and C. You know, there's a, those people I call, in that instance, RJ's champions. The people who will think of you without prompting um, when, when a, a specific circumstance is described. And those people, we, are, we all only have a few of them. Like it's not as though we've all got uh, hundreds of people in support, support crews and, and dozens of people who will be thinking of us really opportunities. But the ones who are in that category, they're really almost the most important people in your life. And keeping them informed as to, you know, if you are aspiring to change direction or do something special, let, you know, letting them know what you're trying to do and they'll be able to help you in various ways. And I suppose going back to, you know, we were talking about, um, you know, the decision with my son, certain schools and the decisions that were uh, made for you in terms of the, the networks and the opportunities that were laid at your feet part of the benefit of having that exposure to that kind of breadth of people is that inherently with that comes more opportunity, right? When you're exposed to people that have yes. more opportunity themselves. Yes, Absolutely. And that's where um, success concepts success. like right. networking yeah. and so on uh, are, um, are valuable concepts to think in terms of. Um, the, the best networks that I have, and they're not, they're more networks out of which I derive great pleasure, are from my schoolmates. I'm, I'm still oh, wow. closely in touch uh, with a, a significant group of my cohort of school, high school mates. Um, <coughs> and in many respects, we've, we finished school 50 years ago, but in many respects, you know, the relationships haven't changed because over a period of six years of high school, you get to know yeah. each other pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Th those are those relationships where you don't have to see people all the time, right? You know, those yes. kind of relationships that you can step right back into and you don't have to invest a lot. Like people know that you can come apart and maybe see each other after a very long time, but you have a history with each other, I suppose, where... Yeah. And, and in, in terms, there are two types of in, investment in relationships. Or there, there can be the bits which are hard work and so on, but most of the stuff in the context of catching up with old mates is, is just pure fun. Uh, mm. Now that I'm at the age I am, I'm probably doing more of it than ever because uh, you know, I've got a bit more time to, to do it. Yeah. And so actually speaking of time, we're talking about freedom hours, right, and how um, we were talking before the, the show, and it, it's my view, and you would have better reach on this, that um, people are realizing in commerce 
and there's more conversation around integration across all areas of our lives. So work-life balance, as they say. For me, as a kid in the 80s, even though I wasn't in business, I didn't see terminology thrown around like that. It didn't seem to have the same kind of level of conversation we're having today. Um, with executives that you coach, uh, what tends to be their relationship to freedom hours? Are a lot of them overworked? Are a lot of them workaholics? Are people, the people that you coach today seem to have a better grasp on the importance of, of freedom and freedom hours? Uh, I'll start with, with my concept of freedom hours, yes. which is the hours in a week where you and you alone determine how you're going to spend those hours. Yeah. And, and for some people it might be quite close to none hours per week at a time when they've got super busy jobs, uh, various commitments outside, plus some, <coughs> excuse me, plus three young kids or something. You know, there are a minimal number of hours. But those are super special hours because they're the ones where you can rejuvenate your mental well-being, um, you know, freshen up in all sorts of different ways, or you can also use them to focus on your own development or whatever, or you can use them just to relax and sit in front of um, you know, some Netflix soapies or whatever, which I've got to say I've been doing a lot more of over the last 12 months, probably twice what I've done in the past. But the thinking of, I've got five freedom hours in a week, say, how do I make that 10 or 15 instead of just five? And it's particularly relevant if you're somebody who's wanting to pursue some ambition outside of your normal working thing. And that could be something which is a sporting goal or it could be a, uh, some other hobby or it could be building a side business or whatever it is. How do you double or treble that small number of hours that you can focus on what you want to focus on. And the second bit of the leverage from it is really using those hours well. So you can revert to the Netflix like I've mm. been, or you can say, right, I've found these three hours. These are going to be devoted unequivocally to me, you know, taking on some challenges so I grow in this particular area. Would you consider Freedom Hours to be you and you alone, or do you consider Freedom Hours hours where you might have it with your ch children, which still require lots of energy for from you, where you may not be rejuvenating? Is it is it completely you? Uh, no, it's not, and, and I'm glad you raised that point, because yep. it could, could easily be misunderstood. No, it's, it's the hours where you exercise your choice to do something that will enrich you. Now that may be through the time that you spend with the kids doing, so it may be that it enriches you playing soccer with your son, but doesn't enrich you doing uh, reading books with him, for example. Now if you focus on this from your point of view, you'll come and play soccer mm. rather than do the books. Um, but it, it doesn't have to be solitary, but how do you find the hours that you, know, 
you can do with others or not what you want to do. When you were in business, what, did you manage that well or was this something that you reflected on later? Uh, were you I think I managed it, it, I, I've managed it reasonably well. I've juggled a range of different things and uh, I've been um, happy with, with the way it's all sort of worked through. Yeah. But I, I was always conscious of um, how do I make sure that I'm not just engulfed by all of this and I don't have time for whatever my core personal um, personal um, um, hobbies, yeah. priorities, etc. And in order to be in a position to do that, you need to have um, understanding people around you in your life who with whom you've had the relevant discussions about expectations and so on. Yeah. Because you can spend your whole life fulfilling other people's expectations, which is, in one sense, wonderful, but if you're not enriching number one um, in the wider sense, mentally, um, spiritually, psychologically, physically, whatever, um, it's it's uh, you, you're missing an important ingredient, mm. and in that context, sorry, did I balance it right? When I think about that more deeply now, uh, no, I didn't, particularly in respect of physical you know, exercise and so on. My level of fitness and strength and so on um, dropped back enormously over the decades that I was working, um, you know, that'd be the, the biggest single thing I'd change probably in benefit of hindsight. But you can only do what you know, that, that took a bit of reflection to realise that then. I have to yeah. continually reflect on that too, I mean I, my wife knows how I'm built and she knows I reflect on a daily basis. I kind of, in terms of time, life for me is on a, on a knife's edge many times. Like yesterday, you know, up at four, doing a podcast, six a.m. here, and then working throughout the day, and then I had to train at three, so I ran 21 Ks, get home at 4.30 or five. My wife's in full meltdown from the nine-month-old who's not sleeping, and I'm managing that, and I have a tendency to get involved in activities that really make me push myself all the time, and I think she's waiting for the day where it will just be work for me, but she knows how I'm built, but I have to continually assess, am I there for her, particularly my wife? and the kids because I don't want to ever lose them in, mm -hmm. in this battle to push myself. And so there's yeah. key things, okay, I'm home for five o'clock every night, I eat dinner, I help her with the nighttime routine, I try to build her into my day as much as possible so she'll stop here for lunch. And So there's a level of flexibility, but I know that at any given time I immerse myself in such 
what can be masochistic stuff like the ultras and yeah. you know and I just I guess I was asking that question selfishly right because I think it's hard when you're a, pers a, a person that you're built a certain way and I tend to get very absorbed in myself in many ways I think my even my drive to create success through business well yes I'm creating success for the family but a lot of it's coming from me and my this the kind of my my need and my drive to to be the best I can be yes so I'm always interested to get executives like yourself especially being at the top for so long your insights on managing that imagine managing family in particular when you're trying to kind of be at your A-game, you know what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, a, a few thoughts sort yeah. of jumped to mind. Yeah. Um, one is that you need to have sort of worked through mutually what the rules of the game are for each other that will work and that support each other and so on. And also to have um, some sort of uh, measure, flag or whatever, as to when it's not working and another mm. discussion is needed or when this might have been the sort of way you both envisaged it working, but the reality is it's working <laughs> this way and it's a, it's a shit fight basically, <laughs> it's not, not working. So you need that sort of thing. The other thing which is, is um, a challenging one is is where perfectionism fits in in all of this because obviously if you're a competitive athlete or you're a, um, a surgeon working in operating theatres or you're an opera singer or somebody like that your aim is to be the absolute best you can and um, that requires a perfectionist mindset uh, <clears throat> and almost 24 hours a day search for where can I find that extra bit of something or other that'll save me one second in a hundred in um, mm. you know hundred meter swim or whatever and and that's fine in those areas but in most other areas of life including in business it, it, it's a case of well what are the things that are going to make the big difference? What are the things that, you know, the old 80-20 rule or that sort of concept, what are the things that are going to make the big difference to the um, well-being of everybody involved, the um, reasonable success or better than reasonable success of the business venture and so on? But um, the unfortunate news is, in my view, we can't be the best we can be all the time across all dimensions. It's, it's just one of the yeah. facts of yeah. life yeah. for all of us. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, we've just mm. got to weigh up what yeah. matters at the moment and, yeah. and be yeah. flexible about it. Ian, it's, uh, I, was, uh, I was watching a video the other day on I did a, I had a race, a foot race in, in New Zealand a year ago in Teruera and the young man that won it, uh, it was a 100k race and he, he killed it. He's English, he's a captain in the English army 
Anyways, he had this uh, video, he's a young kid, right? And he had this video on Instagram the other day about the day in the life. So he does two sessions in the day, he sleeps throughout the day. And I'm, I'm lining up at the race thinking I have a crack at beating this guy. I, I got no sleep, I've got toddlers, I got yes. a business I'm running. I'm doing the same training session and I'm thinking, wow, life's pretty good for you. But to, to yes. your point, I line up and I'm really, and, and maybe it's just managing expectation, right? And, and, and realizing that you've got finite amount of energy. Where am I gonna put this energy? Um, and you know, not getting so damn competitive across the board in every single category because each of these categories in their self are all consuming. Yes. Commerce, sport, and uh, I find sport harder than business. In the sense of being more and more competitive. Yeah, I think that's why I tend to go to it. Like if I'm training for an ultra, it will take my focus because I find it harder than business in many ways. I find it much more engaging. It requires all of me in a way that I think business, because I'm functionally good maybe at what I do, it doesn't. That makes sense. Yes, yeah. They're both measurable sorts of things, particularly if you're in very much a sales uh, correct. type yeah. context and mindset. Um, your time for an ultra or your position at the end or your, yeah. your whatever is yeah. highly measurable. Uh, but sometimes you just got to swallow your pride and and recognise that um, yeah a, a, a guy with two kids can't do the same as a professional athlete from no. uh, a fully sponsored yeah he's twenty five years old <laughs> uh, yeah I faced that in in my tennis uh, I played a, a, yeah. a, a high level of tennis but at the end of the day I was a part time player I played. Four other sports. I played. Um, I, I focused on my study and so on. And I was competing in maybe eight tournaments a year against my contemporaries who were playing the circuit around the world uh, for thirty-six tournaments a year on all sorts of different um, uh, surfaces. So you were, you were like a weekend warrior, you know, in their view, right? Kind in, of in yeah. a sense. Yeah. yeah. Now I'd grown up with them all over yeah. the years, yeah. and and. Yeah. Uh, uh, could compete very effectively right till the time when um, you know they became full-time professionals yeah. and yeah and so on I, I really love this concept where we're moving into the third lens which focuses on building virtuous cycles in our relationships whether it be business another kind of corporate finance I think compounding uh, principle. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about that concept, the virtuous cycle, because I thought that was brilliant. I love the model that you that you had yeah. in there. Yeah, it was really I'm good. glad you do, RJ. I think I think that's why I'm here because uh, you could relate to I love what I was saying yeah. and so on. So uh, let's imagine a business context. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll choose the horrible subject, as most people think of it as, of performance feedback. Oh God. <laughs> and you can apply this whether it's a business context or whether it's your coach for yeah. uh, ultramarathons and so on. You can have a relationship with the coach whereby they give you, and they deliver it appropriately, empathetically, but constructive feedback. You respond to it by by engaging with it or challenging it or whatever, 
you then absorb it and you work hard to take out of that bit of wisdom the best that you can, etc. Incorporate it into your performance or whatever. And you have your next coaching session with the same coach. Their view of you will have gone up from having observed the way in which you've listened and thought and incorporated it. Um, not that you've just accepted it holus bolus, you, you know, you've really worked it through. So you get a benefit there in the relationship and the relationship is stronger for the next discussion and for the discussion after that. And what you're doing there is getting this virtuous cycle of growth in the relationship, trust in the relationship, etc. Won't work if they're giving you inappropriate or poor feedback or communicating it badly. So it somewhat starts with them. But you have the chance to respond and have this virtuous cycle <coughs> in the relationship. You also have the opportunity at the same time to have a virtuous cycle in your learning or in your performance or whatever it is that you're trying to build. Now, that's an incredibly powerful concept if applied over a long period. Because it's the source of you as an athlete um, know deeply, I'm sure, the concept of del deliberate practice. And you're dependent on often a coach or a, um, a manager or somebody else to be widening your horizons or pushing you outside your comfort zone or something in identifiable areas that you can focus on. That becomes incredibly powerful if applied on a regular basis. And if you can have a virtuous cycle weekly with a coach, say, and, and this particular, it's, it's one thing when you're already like Roger Federer with his coach or something, but if you're a 14 year old kid, you can have your coaching session once a week, you and your mate, one of you goes away and does another three hours of thoughtful training, practice, whatever, in the intervening week, the other just sort of comes back again for, let's say, the piano lesson the next week, but hasn't really mm -hmm. put in the hard yards. It, it just isn't going anywhere. But the other, you're on this exponential curve, both in respect of the performance and in respect of the relationship. And if you look at it in a corporate context, um, where in many respects, team members are in a sense competing with mm -hmm. each other, mm -hmm. um, to have the boss respect the fact that, hey, out of all of these, mm. this is the person who really listens to feedback, who I'm always comfortable being open with, etc. Um, they'll be the person who gets offered the next opportunity to, or to be the successor, or It takes whatever. vulnerability, right, Ian, and I think that's something that you would probably have more uh, feedback on. I mean, I've always worked in smaller businesses where I think that level of vulnerability is easier because you're reporting directly to owners and it's like a family type environment. But to what level in the boardrooms that you've been in is between colleagues, is that type of vulnerability generally shown where people will openly take that kind of feedback from colleagues and people within 
the circle or is that generally they have to go external to get that and show that level of vulnerability like an external coach? Um, well, I suspect it, it's a little bit of both um, and, and, and it probably just depends on the individual and the mm. context and so on. Mm. I certainly, um, pro if for example, uh, in examples where I've been chairman of a company I've quite often been in the situation where because I've been more a generalist business person across a whole range of different industries, I'm often chairing the meetings but being the person who actually has had the least total experience in the specific subject, industry. In the subject. Yes. That's an unusual position. But it, it, I've been in that situation in many, many contexts. How do you challenge the environment? Well. The first first bit that uh, I do is to acknowledge, in whatever context, that yeah. I realise I haven't had you know, the yeah, right. and that then overcomes this vulnerability question. Disarm people. And, uh, yeah, because yeah. it enables me to ask um, questions which might be different or dumb or um, sometimes really effective questions. Yeah. Um, from a position where, well, you know, uh, I don't know what the answer to this is, or you use this acronym, um, what, you know, what does that mean? I've, you, know, you can't get away with not knowing the acronyms when you've been in a business for a while, but you can get away um, quite appropriately with not knowing every last thing about the industry or being as wise as your colleagues, but that enables them to feel more like they can ask the occasional dumb question or express a contrary view or, or whatever. You talk about this concept that um, I really related to as a, 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 a group, a, a pool player, pool. Um, playing each shot to make the, the next one easier. And as a pool player, that's something that we inherently understand because you're yes. playing three or four shots ahead. and. If you miscue or you get out of position, you can you can um, kind of mess up the whole plan, so to speak. So I think it's a, a relevant and super important topic, and I've not heard someone put it that way. So you're talking you're you're talking about looking ahead. Yes, right? in a sense, looking ahead, and so um, to take to take a simple example, it might be looking ahead in in learning. It might be looking ahead in a relationship or it might be looking ahead in a project or it might be in a sport like golf or, or pool. I hadn't thought of the pool or billiards. Or very relevant. It's a classic of that where your cue ball is uh, mm -hmm. and, and so on. So, um, forgotten what I was going to say. Um, Playing one shot. Oh, yes. So, um, let's take the learning bit. You know, it, it's the way in which you tackle this bit of learning and how much you worry about mastering that before you move on to the next one or not worry about it and that judgment but the key bit to make the whole process easier same with a project obviously but let's take relationships you and I'll say goodbye today We're, there are many different ways or manners or whatever in which we can do that but the key to me is how do you, both in the way the meeting's conducted, 
this was a business meeting, the notes you take, the minutes or the clarity with which you leave, and the, whether it's the handshake uh, or, or the you know, communications at the end. The end of that meeting is the set up for the next time you get together as a group. Yeah, and in that way it's very similar to pool because the, what happens in billiards is the very good players can look at a table and the layout and recognize pattern play very quickly. So they can identify just on 100,000 shots they've taken over the course of practice pattern play across the table. So this creates that kind of economies of learning, right, where you start to recognize as well how one move interrelates yes. with the next, which is creating efficiencies, more bang for your buck, helps you manage energy better. There's a whole host of benefits, I think, that comes out of this kind of thought process. Yes. Yeah. And, and um, the same in the relation, if, if you're delegating something to somebody, the manner in which you delegate this job and the way in which you round out that delegation when the, when the job's finished totally sets the, um, the learnings but also the successful start for the next bit of delegation. I find, um, as a salesperson especially, and it, 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 and that's something I have to be careful about when I when I take it into the context of my my family life and everything, is and you'd probably be familiar with this is a, is a board chairman, is about framing, so I tend to look at everything, in terms of how I manage the client acquisition process, the strongest frame wins, and I tend yes. to always look at how well am I framing, and then moving to the next frame to the next frame, to the next frame. And in many ways, just thinking out loud, that's relating very much to what you're saying. It's that playing, that one shot to set yes. the next. And I find when you frame very well, especially in a business context, you then manage a process much easier. Yes, yeah. Right. I think I, I um, agree strongly with what you just said there. Um, because the, the framing is important to um, putting a context for decision making or, or a context for um, projects or instructions or whatever. I'm, I must say it's not necessarily a skill, that's a skill on which I um, could improve materially from a six or seven to an eight or nine. Yeah. It's one of those ones that I'm conscious that I don't do as, um, it, it, as well as I it, should. It's, it's an interesting one because if I look at opportunities where I've lost um, a major sale, it tends to be I've rubbed up against the client where someone in that process has a very strong frame and I haven't subjugated my frame to deal with that frame. I actually look at business interactions in a sales process as frame versus frame. Yes. There's, everyone's got these frames. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. about, it's an unusual way of looking at things, but this really talks and speaks to me. Really. Well, I think back to the negotiating course that I went on 30 years ago, I took away half a dozen 
um, core principles and one of the uh, most important ones there was uh, you, you've got to understand the other person's agenda, what their priorities are, one through to five and how do you match those with your own one to five, which may be quite different. It's a simple version of the same principle at work. I think, I think thinking for me, the challenge is um, allowing myself in a negotiation to allow someone else to have their stronger frame and be led, knowing I'll still get the outcome. I think I've got yeah. the control issues, I guess is what they call that in, in common language. And because what I've come to learn in business is everything's about agenda. And that's kind of why I don't like business in a way. It's, it's very agenda driven. It's very frame driven. There's always an outcome that you're seeking in, yes. in many ways. And yeah. I find it's just tedious because of that, right? Whereas at least when I'm running. You can't be a free spirit. In no, that's yeah. actually what it is. Yes. It's, it's very just boxed and kind of, you know. But I didn't get the impression you don't enjoy business. I think you I enjoy, enjoy the... I, I enjoy yeah. the, that part. Like, I do. I do. Yeah. Um, I do. I think what's happening, just to, to digress and go personally, is as I'm getting older, I'm becoming more introverted. And I, and I don't, I find the sales process and people management exhausting, to yeah. be quite frank. And that's why I think I'd like to spend more time alone because it helps me deal with the people management. But I have very much a role where I do a lot of energy with people and I then extract myself where I've thought about going corporate and what that would take for someone like me to go into a big corporate, let's say Star Trek Express and yes. get a corporate office. Like what would that mean, the implications on my energy if I'm having to give it all the time? And I don't know if I could cope with that. You know what I mean? And so, oh, and, and what you're saying is there would be a lot more of that giving of energy in a big corporate office. It'd be, I, I think so. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I, I think it'd be quite different in the nature of the way you were giving mm. those sorts of things, yeah. More internal to the... There's a lot of internal giving of stuff, whereas uh, I'd imagine in your current role, the giving is more in the engagement with the external Correct. Uh, Correct. customers. I, and I, I, I can see the benefits of that, where I struggle to see the benefits on the internal side sometimes, if that makes sense. So yeah. um, we move into the more philosophical elements of the, the book, Signals, Light Bulbs. What, it, what are they? Um, you gave a good example of a signal earlier, which was your uh, or a signal, a light bulb. It was a bit of a merger of the two. In the example of suddenly this realisation about equity and um, it's the, the opportunity that that offered in, in various dimensions, your um, preliminary a sudden awareness of that, your first ever real awareness of that, uh, is an opener to a range of things. And uh, it is really a 
game changer, next sort of concept in your whole view of, of um, uh, your immediate employment context and really of, of possibly your whole career, you know, yeah. uh, very preliminary to speculate on that. But what, what Jess and I are at with that concept is you notice something, something that you haven't noticed before and it might be to do with your own character or ambitions or it might be something out there to do with the world and opportunities but you notice something and something goes in the head that says that's special and you can see how it's special in your current context so it's a game changer for that current context and then the next bit is Okay, it's a game changer in this context. Why can't it be a game changer in all sorts of other contexts? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it might be um, a, a thing—a light bulb of, oh, sorry, a, um, a signal and a light bulb to do with having the courage to jump outside your comfort zone, and suddenly realising that, hey, don't I feel invigorated? Why haven't I done this five years ago, etc., etc.? And then it becoming a, a, a practice of yours to um, yeah. keep saying, right, uh, I've been doing the same thing, not just for one year. I've had three years of experience with Company X, but all, it's really three times the same year. I've got to jump outside this and so on. And having that sort of thinking applied throughout your life, that you're always, you know, just looking for new things to enrich you, yeah, uh, is to me a life changing mm-hmm. thing. Matthew McConaughey, the actor, just wrote a book called Green Lights, and it's that concept. He's called it Green Lights. Right. And it's about having one has to be aware and open first of all i suppose and not walking through life with blinders yes because there are many people still in the dark but i think it's a brilliant concept um one, so one, yeah. just on that one one example that um influenced my life enormously was as a young kid 13 14 or something I, for the first time, started teaching myself something, and and it happened to be French. But what I learned through that was that I I could teach myself stuff. You know, until then, you you think everybody's telling you what to learn and, um, and spoon feeding you and so on, whereas once you get to realise, hey, I can teach myself stuff. It doesn't matter whether it's French in my case or um, other academic things like history or whatever. It might be hobbies or it might be how to play a sport or bridge or whatever. Whatever it is, once you develop that confidence, it's a a life changer because you can just apply that skill and, and confidence in all sorts of areas. Why though, why do... So when I got sober off 
um, from alcohol, that was my game changer. And I, reflecting, although it was really, really hard, um, because I am an addictive person, and that was the last kind of addiction that I had to battle. Around week three, I had this profound realization that I was doing it, and that I was successfully staying sober. And I found this empowerment and strength and this energy that I was like, wow, okay, this is special. This is interesting. And I think that what I learned through that process was knocking on the door of hard is the way, probably to my detriment now, where I think I seek discomfort a little bit too much. But I also realized it was transferable. What yeah. about those individuals yeah. that are like guns, like super high-level operators in segments in their life? So I struggle with people that have business success, and we're talking about discipline required to eat better, and they seem to struggle. And I get frustrated because they can't see how transferable the success and the habits they apply to business are. What, what's your opinion on that? Why do some people struggle with connecting the, the transferable nature of, of, of their skills or their habits? Yes. Um, an interesting one, and I'm interested in it because uh, if it wasn't for my wife, I don't think I'd be necessarily a, a great healthy eater. And even even with the benefit of her input, I'm still not a great <laughs> a great healthy. Not too bad, yeah. yeah but, um, but that's one I've found yeah. very hard to change, and I adopt the view um, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. No, I haven't it doesn't matter time. enough to you. It doesn't matter enough to me. That's the maybe that's, that's what the it is. Uh, yes, you're right. It doesn't the, the pleasure that I get out of whatever my bad eating habits doesn't matter. The reward exceeds the risk. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, mm. and, and so perhaps there's an element of that. Um, perhaps there's an element of uh, they just don't realise how important it is. There, I guess in all of these things there's a, there's a um, logical and analytical sort of bit and there's also just an emotional bit and an emotional bit which affects both uh, um, how big is the reward and how hard is the effort to do it? Um, yes, they are. They are. Their definition of success may be different. Yes. Or success yes. in certain areas of their life, maybe in business, may not be coming from a virtuous place. Uh, so some people I view are successful in business, but are successful on the back of unhealthy drivers chip on their shoulder, perfectionism, fear of less than. I find a lot of people that have had trauma are successful in business. Therefore, they haven't integrated healthy habits and healthy ways of life in other areas of their life versus a more integrated. So if you say to me what a successful human looks like, I'm not looking at one segment. I'm looking at the successful integration because I know that 
whilst materially they can be successful, it may not be coming from a harmonious energy. Oh, yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I'm sure you work with people like that, that completely in one segment may look super, super light, talented, and the outcomes are great. But the areas, the other areas of their lives are in shambles, I suppose. Yes. Um, to be honest, right now, not currently, but I, over the years, yeah, yeah you, do, you yeah. do strike those sorts of situations. And I think the, just thinking about that exact example of the very successful business person versus the, um, say, eating habits or drinking habits, whatever it might be, I think there's an element of um, environmental something around you that helps to put, in some cases, good parameters and influences around you, but in, in, in other cases, you know, so a person might have that at work, all the right, you know, the yeah. pressure and responsibility yeah. of reporting to their CEO, reporting yeah. to a board, or and working with all the people in the um, joining offices and with the stakeholders outside. But we've all only got um, so much amount of energy and self-discipline and whatever that we're capable of. Yeah. And if you invest it all at work and, and then get home to an environment where you perhaps haven't got anybody else who's helping you improve your diet or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, we, we interviewed a... Um, an ex-NFL player yesterday, Anthony Trucks. Remarkable man. Uh, he He's super interesting. You'd really find him interesting because his level of engagement is just extraordinary. But he is an African-American ex-NFL player, grew up in the same town as me, so we had that connection. And he was raised in foster care and adopted by a white family and came from poverty. And his white family... They were poor, but had lots of love. He ended up in and out of institutions. And then one day, a girl in class said he's that way because he's a foster child. And he had an immediate light bulb moment. And he determined at that moment, being a foster child was not going to determine who he was. And he sucked at football, but wanted to become a football player. So long story short, he said he practiced football he said, I practiced in the dark. I didn't let anyone see. And he said, when I went out to play football, my mentality was, you're not going to beat me because you haven't earned the right because I knew I had put in the time. So his big thing is identity. Whatever we identify as, our ego won't let us let ourselves down. Yes, yes. And he's, got, he's on to something there because, for instance... I guess in the context of what we're saying, if you, st for instance, I went to Melbourne with the guys that I work with. They all stayed out. I went to sleep because I knew I had to wake up and train in the morning for a run. My identity is so intrinsically connected with running, the outcomes I get from running, yeah. the environment, the frame of that environment won't create enough pressure to knock me off. Yes. And so I think where he, 
some people probably don't give themselves the time to stay on the wagon long enough to build that new sense of identity. I'm a healthy eater. People in the environment start to give you feedback. Wow, you're eating much more healthy. Wow, you're looking great. And then it starts to become part of who you are. Yes. And then, and I think it's, I think Anthony, uh, we had a conversation. I think he's onto something there. Yes. Yeah. With your story with Anthony, one of the things that reminded me of is the concept of um, am I a victim yeah. of whatever it is that I've been through, whether it's when I've been young or at school or later on in unfair things that have happened in business or sport, am I a victim or, or am I a player in this? And what can I do? What's in my control yeah. to change this, etc.? And his sounded like a uh, classic realization of that point linked in with the identity point. To the extent, now this is remarkable, that when he got injured from the Pittsburgh Steelers, he went home and started building a gym. And he talks about all this stuff, which is extraordinary. And he had two twins, so he had a child when he was 16 and still went into the NFL. Um, he had two twins and a child and he was at the gym trying to make this gym work in debt and getting overweight himself. His wife cheated. Now here's the remarkable thing. Um, they separated and then they ended up getting back together. They went on a holiday. She invited him and they reconnected. What he said was that he had to rigorously look at his part in her infidelity. Now he said, I'm not, yes. I'm not saying what she did was okay. Yes. That's her cross to bear. I was at home. I was leaving a woman at home with three kids. I was at home maybe four hours a day. I was negligent. I found that remarkable. Right, that he actually took his inventory to the extent that said, hey, I didn't push her. I mean, I, she had a choice to go into that man's arms, but I may have not done our relationship the service. And I just found that extraordinary because most people in that scenario would be like, well, there's, it's, it's, you know, it's, there's nothing, there's no excuse, right? So, yeah. yeah. But um, when they get to the point where in that case, she goes off to, to somebody else. Um, there's been such a long uh, yeah. period of lead up to that. Mm. Uh, and it's amazing how, uh, and we all have it in all sorts of contexts where we, it doesn't really dawn on us or we don't take it seriously enough or we don't talk about it enough or whatever to, uh, to um, That's it. sort it out. I had, I had an, an interesting one of that nature with my wife. And, and this was when I stopped being a full-time executive, I moved my office to home. And um, I essentially did that without really any consultation with my wife. Like, it was a, a big house and there was more than enough What's room the problem? And, yeah. and, and so on. And... Um, and, and 
she, I didn't understand why she objected to this so much. I, I thought, well, you know, I've worked hard, uh, as has she, to build this house and, and so on. Uh, why can't I have a study in it and so on? Anyway, I never understood. Anyway, finally, after about, I don't know, it must have been seven years or six years of, of you know, slowly. occasionally <laughs> arguing about this subject, finally she said, you, you just got to move that office out. So I got a unit up the road that I rented. Were you too loud or disruptive? Like just uh, as a matter no, of No, uh, well I'll, I'll come to what, what yeah. I realised. So um, I moved to this office up the road, it was just a one bedroom unit, and uh, um, what I noticed was when I walked into that unit, I really, really um, had a spring in the step because I was going to somewhere that was mine. I could do whatever I wanted I get there, it. play loud music, I, I could yeah. wear my footy shorts or yeah. whatever it was, that this was my place, etc. And And it was only then that it dawned on me that's what I'd taken away from Tory when I just moved moved the office home and so on. So interesting. Um, yeah. But it takes us a long time sometimes to. That was my real life bulb out of that one. And sometimes you think like you'll be you're doing them a favor. Like my wife is like I I have an office at home, but I our relationship's better when I'm here. To a certain degree, I think in my head she wants me there, but I'm very loud. I'm disruptive. She's trying to put the baby to sleep, and I'm getting in the way of her process. And I'm like, well, hey, I thought you want me here. But uh, no, nah, look, I think it's really interesting stuff. So I think what we'll do is we'll wrap it up there, Ian. Um, it's been a lovely, lovely conversation. So much depth. I can pick your brain for hours, honestly. And I really appreciate you coming up here and, and taking the time to talk to us. Uh, giving us your wisdom, your experience. Is there anywhere that we can find you in terms of website or contact, in terms of the book or...? Yeah, so uh, if uh, our audience today uh, are interested, they can go to our website, which is jessanianpollard.com, and uh, they can buy metal spinach through that website. And um, that's probably the main. And the money goes to charity, doesn't it? All yes, uh, any dollars that's, that that's we important, receive, important not bit. just profits. Yeah. This yeah. is a um, you know a, a loss making venture of some magnitude. And not uh, great for a corporate finance guy, but no. But, but uh, <laughs> we we both uh, do this, and we also run uh, workshops for corporate oh. groups or whatever. And again, any any of that goes to charities. Perfect. So, well, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. I hope you had a good time. Thank you for your appreciation of, of uh, um, the insights that Jess and I have. And I think I'd just like to finish by noting that um, we don't apply these in every last thing. We're not perfectionists about it. Uh, we just think there's a collection of useful tools that people will like this one, perhaps not find that one less effective. But that's the... Sort of right, brilliant and literally you can read it in a day that's the, that's yes. the great thing like you don't have to take it's not like the uh, history of uh, war and peace or, or whatever you know yeah. so all good peace thank you thank you so much no. Ian